namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa bhutang damang sangang namasan I'm glad to see you're actually still all here. <laughs> so the like, this afternoon I saw the first people in flat the cold, maybe. <laughs> um, so I've got uh, another question here, um, which is uh, related with, um, to what I've been talking about before, before tea, so I'm probably going to carry on a bit from there. So... Question is: uh, Sometimes we are advised to allow thoughts and feelings to arise and cease without judgment or labeling. Other times we are advised to label them as good, bad, pleasant, or unpleasant (in brackets) or neutral. I am confused when to do this and when not to. <laughs> so it's a good question, and yes, I can understand. Sometimes it can be seem a bit confusing or non-practice? Am I just supposed, you know, the, the advice of just being aware, just allowing anything that arises? And what about discernment, about what's right and wrong and good or bad, or about, you know, doing something about if unwholesome stuff arises and shouldn't we? You know, sometimes, obviously, there seems to be the advice to do something about it, no? Isn't that not a contradiction? Um, I don't think it has to be a contradiction. Uh, in some way, I think um, it has to do with how we can and how we actually naturally, in some ways, always relate to our experience or from different, on, on different levels. And I think part of this kind of the different attitudes um, relate to different levels of relationship to our Experience and they can, of course, easily be confused conceptually. Be confused if you think a lot about practice, but also experientially. I mean, this is quite a real experience, I think. And uh, a little bit like with the previous question, also here are there various um, concepts and you know <laughs> levels of of relationship, if you like, uh, a bit intermingled. So part of the answer, perhaps, also. Uh, already lies in trying to disentangle them again, a little bit like the previous question. Three, four, four elements here to me that are kind of a bit mixed together and that, which I like to you know, um, take, you know, separate a bit from each other and explain a bit more about. It's the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, again, you know, which is the Vedana, uh, usually in English translated as feeling. Um, the good and the bad, which is actually here in this question are equated, but which I understand is actually something different in the Buddhist way of looking at things. And uh, then the, the question about discernment and radical acceptance, judging or non-judgmental acceptance. And then the question of labeling. So it's four different things. Um, 
Now, where do we want to start? Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. That's where we left it this afternoon. As I said, that's the first thing is one level of our experience, which, as I said, is, is, is not uh, something like in our meditation. It's not something to be to be judged. It's just something to be noticed, first of all. And that's just the natural way in which our mind um, works, um, will, will, will always work. It just qualifies naturally experience in that way. And that's, as I, as I explained, explained earlier, that's just very useful in meditation. If we can be, become aware of that, the more we become aware of that, the more informed choices um, we can make about that. So this reality that we can observe, that our mind will naturally label or understand experience in that way and react normally accordingly, is neither bad or good. It's just a first effect that it's very useful to be aware of. You could possibly say, to a certain extent, it's for start, it's, it's probably it's, it's actually good for us. It's actually helpful. You know, in, a, in a very rough uh, approximation to reality, you might say that the pleasant usually equates with what is actually good for us uh, as an organism, and unpleasant, which what is not so good for us. It's very basic principle in which nature seems to be organized on, on, on all levels, certainly in terms of sentient beings, you know, beings who have an, a nervous system and process sense stimuli in that way. You know, I just like to use the example of a li- the little amoeba, you know, which if you, if you observe an amoeba through a microscope or something in, in, in its solution, it's poodling around there happily. Um, and then if you put some food into the solution, uh, whatever it is that, an, uh, that amoeba likes, you will immediately notice it's going to move towards it. No? it that, so there's something going on, no? like uh, there's, an, there's an experience, there's contact on whatever level, if you, you know, uh, consciousness, sense object, and sense organ come together, there's an experience, and probably the amoeba in its own primitive ways, or certainly the mechanism is there, no? as it recognizes it subjectively as pleasant and moves towards it. You put salt into the water, and what you see is the exact opposite. The amoeba will immediately recoil um, from, from the salt in the solution, because it's bad for the amoeba. And how does it know it? If it's, uh, certainly, if, no, I don't know that much about amoebas. Maybe that apl- doesn't apply on that, on that level yet. But the principle is the same. You know, for, for animals, certainly, that are sophisticated enough to have a nervous system, they probably sense this as a stimulus that they will then in- interpret in some ways as unpleasant, you know, which gives a signal you know, to, the, to, the, to the animal, to the creature, to say, careful, go away. No? And that's, a, that's a, as a principle, even though you know, we don't know about the, whether an amoeba feels anything or how, whether it has or how the conscious experience of an amoeba is like. But at least mechanically we can see, you know, on that very basic or simple life on this, that very principle in operation, which is still actually the basic ba- building block on the, on the, uh, in which our, our mind, our sophisticated mind, actually uh, operates on. No, all our more complex you know, emotions, moods are all actually based on proliferations, if you like, sophistications that are built upon this very simple um, building block of like, dislike, have, and get away from. You know? um, we have a bit more sophisticated kind of range of things in which we, that we can play out on that. You know? But it's based on that principle. 
you can see that, like for example, in 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 say small infants, I guess, and well, that's that's what what they start with and how they learn. Yes, to, to first of all, they will go for uh, you know what's pleasant, go for it, you know, want it, unpleasant, get away from, you no. Know? And if you don't give me what I feel is pleasant, then I've no, that's different. That's unpleasant. Start to cry so that I get what I want, you no. Know? That's, that's already kind of the principle right? we, we need to learn. You know, that's, that's essential for maturation you know, of a human being, and even more so you know, when, when, we, when we come into spiritual practice, spiritual growth, to differentiate from that process. You know, that we start to learn that that equation isn't always true. You know, precisely that equation is not always true. Pleasant isn't, doesn't always mean good for me. Unpleasant doesn't always necessarily mean bad. You know, it's a very rough approximation to reality. And sometimes pleasant, you know, a little bit of, ple- of what's, what feels pleasant might be good for me, but there's also a question of you know, quantity. How much of it you know, is actually still going to be good for you? Mm-hmm. Like uh, uh, this today, we had uh, cheesecake on, at, at the meal time. There probably wasn't anything left by the time you went through the food. <laughs> there was still something left when I came. There was still a whole cheesecake there. And, well, I like cheesecake. You know, I'm conditioned in a way to feel that cheesecake is pleasant. And so probably when I would have, would have been very small, kind of three-year-old, actually, I don't have to go that far back, to be honest. <laughs> I would probably easily have thought, well, it tastes good, put it in as much as I can take. Why take anything else if there's cheesecake? You know, just eat, 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 eat. And then pretty soon I probably found out that, oof, you know, pleasant you know, it doesn't always mean good if I take it to an unlimited extent in terms of quantity. You know, a little bit of cheesecake is probably okay, <laughs> but a lot has afterwards will have unpleasant effects. And that's of course something that we learn sometimes through, through trial and, and error and, and through you know rational thinking. You know, because that's part of the good thing of having a that that's you know, complex, sophisticated brain. We can find out those those things. And then we can have a different, we can actually operate on more than just the ple- pleasure pain principle, which is actually very much to our advantage, isn't it? We can think sometimes we might, I might know, I mean, these days, say I'm sophisticated enough that I think that a lot of things that I know I, I really like and are very, very pleasant to me, even they are intrinsically not really good to me, not really good for me. I might think, well, my little bit is, is not going to be harmful at least, you know? So I can, Put certain balance against just the, the 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 impulse to just follow that the pleasure principle. But we also know how fragile that is and how easily you know, particularly on that on that level, with strong sensual pleasure, um, we can get so you know overwhelmed, or seduced by the attraction that we really just throw overboard you know our clarity, our rational mind, which which realizes this isn't good, you know, but. It's just attraction is just so powerful that we go for it anyway, and then afterwards we, we might feel bad about it. You know? And that, of course, also where it, where it, where it uh, moves over into that into that other level that the Buddha definitely did talk about about good and bad. I mean, the, the Buddha talked about good and bad in relative to um, more like what he's calling what's wholesome and what's unwholesome. You know? Roughly speaking, like what, what creates suffering, more suffering for myself, for others, that it would qualify as unwholesome and you might say bad. No? 
uh, and what what um, creates well-being you know, in long term, you know, spiritual well-being, not just you know nice feeling. <laughs> uh, what reduces suffering that would be wholesome, you know, and therefore you might say call it good. And certainly, he is very much encouraged to be discerning about that and to to actually judge our experience in their terms and to act accordingly. We probably well, if, I mean, if you find immediately, of course, many reasons for that. Well, this, we probably all recognize an intrinsic value in that. You know? It's what moral and most actually morality or ethics and most spiritual, religious, and even non-religious, secular kind of teachings, philosophical teachings, is based about. Uh, upon this, this principle, you find it again and again in, in all kinds of philosophical or spiritual religious texts. In all the sense of recognition that we don't like to suffer. And the Buddha specifically used that and, and argued in that way, you know, as, as we know that we want to be free of suffering. You know, we want to be well and we want to be safe. So we can actually reckon, and that's, that's the principle of empathy. No, we have this wonderful capacity. You know, not only we can do it on the rational level, but also I think we can open it on the feeling level. We recognize that that's true for all living beings, not only true for other human beings, and not only for human beings, and all sentient beings, basically, as we know, we can see if you have that you know, kind of wish or tendency. So then, therefore comes this principle, you know, then, and that should actually, there's something, the Buddha claim is not just a rational principle that we can then conclude, of course, you know, the way I don't want to be treated by others, then it seems natural that I, therefore, also don't treat other people like that. You know, or if you turn it positively, the way I like to be treated, it would be sensible to also treat other people like that. You know, if I like to be treated with respect, it only makes sense. And I also conclude it's probably true for other people, and therefore I treat other people with respect as well. You know? It seems very obvious. So it also we easily kind of lose a bit sight of that, you know, and just overlook that in small or big ways because we have this, some kind of strongly inbuilt principle at work then which is kind of says, me first, you know, I'm the important one. We will much easily ascribe all kinds of rights, you know, claim all kinds of rights for ourselves that we feel sometimes a bit hesitant to actually also grant them to others. <laughs> uh, but it, the, the Buddha was speaking about a sense that that's also on an effective level, it's something that the heart, when it's open, knows, just knows. You don't have to actually go into a lot of rational thinking about it. When the heart is open and unobstructed, it just naturally feels that empathy and knows empathy and that knows. You know, that, that's the nature of sentience, of, conscious, of consciousness, wherever it manifests. Um, and, re- and responds to it intu- intuitively, directly, of, of, wa- of not wanting, of, of recoiling from causing harm not to oneself or others. Again, that's, 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 so the, the, the Buddha, uh, obviously, that's, that's very crucial in, in the Buddhist teaching on, on that level and also and on, a, on a, another secondary level, if you like, also in terms of practice. That's what the Buddha uh, based in his teaching, also the, the teaching of, of sila or ethical behavior as, as, as the very foundation or basis uh, of practice. He said, if you violate that principle, your mind is basically going to be so obstructed and caught up in, in internal conflict and remorse that it's going to be an obstacle in your progress in the spiritual path. It's going to be a direct obstacle in, you know, it's, it would seem really obvious in a way to, you know, if you, if you think about the Buddha referred to the past as the purification of the heart, you know, if you are caught up in, in unwholesome actions, it's, it's, it's a direct opposite of purification, isn't it? It's contamination of the heart. It's going to obstruct our 
sense of well-being. It's going to obstruct our capacity to see. No? There might actually it's, it's, it gives us all kinds of interest, called self interest in not seeing certain things you know, because we're actually involved in creating pain, suffering, and we might and we probably for self-protection actually don't want to know about it. Part of us that's part of you know, what keeps ignorance in place because it hurts and it hurts to find out. But that's the path of purification. You know, we first have to find out, acknowledge, take in the pain, and that's going to motivate us to do something about it. And if you don't, that's exactly where we stay stuck. And the Buddha was also very specific about it. That's that is is what becomes an obstacle also on the path of meditation and in in reaching deeper states of of samadhi or insight. It becomes a blockage on a path. It doesn't matter how many hours of meditation you put in. If you haven't got the foundation of you know of morality sorted out, not just in a, on a, in a legalistic sense of, you know, of keeping the letter, but it is in terms of, of the purification of the intention of the heart and bringing in that, that natural inclination towards uh, harmlessness you know, and kindness. Um, it, it's, it's, it, it's, 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 a, it's an, obs- it's an obscuration, it's a clouding of the heart. You know, and, if, and there's either, either way, either you sort it out first, you know, then you get like but the, the Buddha talked about that in, this, in, the, in the suttas, in his, the, the, the natural progression. If your conduct is, is morally, ethically pure, then there's going to be no cause for regret, for remorse. And, and then he says, that then a heart, a mind that is, that is free of remorse, um, is naturally um, going to be um, happy. No, you don't have to worry about creating happiness. If you're free of remorse, the mind is naturally going to be happy, and the heart that's, that's happy will naturally going to be um, tranquil. No? And there's a kind of a natural progression then. No? When, when the heart is happy, content, has no remorse, it's, mu- it's much, much easier it's much, to just sit down and keep your own company and be quiet with yourself because you don't have all kinds of stuff coming up that's going to trouble your heart. No? And if not, then of course that's also what's what people find out. Find out if you haven't got cleared up your act yet, as it were, <laughs> then you probably soon find out if you do a lot of meditation, uh, go meditation. That's sometimes what, what people first find out. You, you go say a meditation retreat, start meditation, think, oh, that's going to help me to quieten down, to, to be more peaceful, and all that. And then often we find the, the opposite at the beginning. We, we start to actually. We go into a meditation retreat, are quiet a bit, and then we are shocked by all the kind of stuff that comes up that we suddenly see, which is not necessarily a bad sign. It just might means that perhaps it's the first time we actually allow the space in the mind for those things to actually come up. Or it's the first time that we really pay attention. No? So then that's kind of the other way around. Then meditation or insight, sometimes can be a very unpleasant experience first on that level. We might see actually a lot of things that we don't like very much about ourselves. But that's the first step on the path of purification. You know, it's natural. And then that gives us a message, oh, you're going to have to do something about this. You, know, you don't just you know, watch it again and again and feel miserable about it or create, create an identity around it and how bad you are. Well, it's just, you know, do something about it. You know, then you don't have to feel bad about it anymore. You know, that's, that's, that's actually the, the wholesome function of remorse. There's nothing wrong with remorse. You're supposed to feel remorse if you have done something that wasn't so good, you know, 
So there's no point whinging about it. <laughs> so you say, well, that's the natural results. That's fine. We couldn't be grateful for it because then that's going to motivate ourselves. And that's the whole point in the Buddhist teaching. No, that, no, that's not the whole point. That's one of the points. No, then, they, then that can inform us to do better in the future. No, rather than keep indulging you know, in the memory of all the bad things that we have done, which we have done, that's past. No, we can't do anything about it. But we can turn it around, turn it positive, when we actually then willingly take on the initial pain of that and then allow that to be a motivation you know, for doing better in the future. Mm. That's why it's kind of this, it's this double take. We might have, like in a meditation experience, it can be like that in, and it is, they, 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 in some, sometimes they call it like a discovering technique you know, in the, uh, because it, 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 it uncovers things in you know, meditation. If you're just quiet with your mind for a while, it creates kind of a space where things can surface. No. So in some ways, on one way, in terms of content, you might find things out about yourself that you might not like or that might be painful. And yet at the same time, you can actually feel, interestingly enough, very elated and happy about that. Huh? You might come home and tell, tell your friends or something, oh, yeah, I went on this meditation retreat, and I found out the first time, oh, wow, you know, all the kind of, how unskillful, actually, the kind of things that I, I'm involved in, what I'm doing, what I'm saying, and really all this kind of, all this muck coming up, you know. And I feel so glad about it and things and say, well, huh? you know, I, did she kind of lose it or he, you know, on the, <laughs> on the retreat? No, it's because at the same time, of course, we actually realize and we can and we, we, and we will probably, if you get the point, you know, feel genuinely glad and grieved about that we actually reach the capacity to actually see this. You no, know, that's actually the positive news about it. You know? We can actually feel um, encouraged, strengthened and glad about being able to hold and see more maybe of our pain or, or, or acknowledge or notice some of our unwholesomeness. So then it gives us actually the capacity to let, let go of some of that and, and, and um, you know, work with it. And that's, of course, the, the case for why we are advised um, to, to notice, and that's a natural result in our meditation. And if you like, in, the, in that way, label or qualify, you know, what comes up. And to clearly see what is unwholesome as unwholesome. That's a, that can be, in some sense, sometimes a giant step in our development. Because if, if you're not arrived there, and you can see that, maybe in yourself, certainly I might you know, see that in myself or in others around you, how much energy we invest in just denying sometimes, you know, simple, you know, having been at fault or doing things that are not so good and come out with so much mental energy can be spent and just somehow covering it up even to start to ourselves justifying it and and so forth. No, and the mind is very good really. the more clever we are the more clever we are to justifying just about anything the mind can justify just about anything you know? and and if that doesn't make sense hopefully in some ways you, you can see that in yourself that's part of you know the, the the, the path of practice, the path of honesty, and the, where, again, where practice works, when we can see that in ourselves, then we can start to actually work with it. No, in other words, we can, it becomes very obvious if you just open the newspaper and see what's what's going on, or listen to a debate in Parliament or something. It sounds ridiculous what's going on there. You know? and, but everybody fits well justified and in the right, and the others are wrong, no? and very unwilling to look at one's own stuff. No? That's what we do in meditation. We actually stop looking out there and trying to fold others and we look at our own stuff. Najin Chah used to say, you know, use 10% of your critical mind in judging others around you, 90% towards yourself. No, that's the right balance. So it's very important. 
And uh, also, just to come back to the, to the other level, pleasant, unpleasant, that's also it's important to, to see that level and also distinguish um, those two because the, the, the clarity or, or, of, of perception and of judgment, if you like, that we can achieve, sometimes with a lot of work and a lot of observation and, and, and reflection, contemplation in our life, still as this, this more basic, you know, ingrained pleasure principle, pleasure-pain principle, which is much more at the core, if you like, of our hard wiring, it's so powerful, you know, it can so easily swamp and, and swallow that, that, that clarity, you know. And to, to be able to actually observe it, and then also to guard ourselves against that, will um, when we become clear about that, you know, and honest about that, will will encourage us uh, to take you know things like the um, the commitment to things like the precepts, you know, um, very seriously. You know, if you notice that in our behavior, uh, there are lots of ramifications, and as I say, like for example, the, you know, there are many reasons. I say, for, for example, for why you know the monastic form, you know, the renunciation form, there is the, the Buddha advocated, you know, and that to, to practices with celibacy. You know, one of the bonds of celibacy is, you know, as you know, like uh, sexual energy, how powerful that can be. You know, actually, the Buddha at some point, you know, from the Anguttara said, if there's one other, would be one other force, attraction in the mind, you know, like with the same magnitude like sexual attraction, you know, then, then liberation would be impossible. You know, but because there's only this one, it's, it's actually possible, but it's hard work. <laughs> and, you know, like, for example, I, I remember certainly from, from, from my life, from before I became a monk, how easy, easily, you know, you can, can compromise ethical principles and care and uh, concern for others you know, our own welfare, not an other perspective, for, by, by sexual attraction. How easily we get into, you know, sexual adventures, you know, because it's just so attractive, and we just shut down the 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 the, the more the, the, the more kind of um, discerning, you know, critical faculties. Says, oh, be careful, you know, you're gonna get yourself in trouble. You know, you're gonna be hurt, or other people are gonna be hurt. You know, your partner's gonna be hurt. You know, if you follow that way. Uh, you know. Um, maybe you know, just have another three drinks and then think about it again. And of course, after three drinks, three drinks, you don't think about it again. You just wake up in a bed that you, you know, when you were clear in your mind, you never thought you would end up in, you know, and then you've got a lot of problems, you know, and there's a lot of suffering created. Uh, which is one, one, one reason why I felt, you know, quite grateful, you know, that once I became uh, among celibate, which is not always easy, of course, because you know um, sexual energy doesn't just disappear. But by just this very clear injunction of you just don't follow it. You know, if you want, if you want to practice in a monastic form, just don't follow it. It just clears out a whole lot of complication in terms of relationships in one's life and the whole possibility uh, of causing suffering for oneself and others. And certainly an area where where I, where I had suffered and, and caused suffering for others, you know, just through heedlessness and through falling for the uh, pleasure principle, and you know, chucking out the clear, kind of more discerning kind of mind and clarity. And these days, I'm, I'm also getting better on, on the level with food. No? <laughs> As a young monk, I wasn't always that good on that. And if, if you can't follow the pleasure principle on sexuality anymore, then. You know, as, as monks, you know, monastics, there's been a lot of that kind of craving gets concentrated into food. 
you know, because there's one thing that's allowed, actually. <laughs> Cheesecake is allowed, you know. And then that sometimes you have to you just ob- observe, you know, that's what's actually going on there in the mind and can be just quite humbling how suddenly you, you go through the food line and there are ten pieces of cheesecake and there are nine people behind you on the, in the line and for, for some weird logic you think that means that you're entitled to have three. Doesn't make any sense, you know, a few hours later when you think about it again, but when, you, when you're in front of the cheesecake suddenly it makes a lot of sense, you know. <laughs> It's weird, isn't it? And, and as I said, if the mind is very clever, it, comes, it can even come up with very, very clever reasons why this makes complete sense. I mean, you, you probably, for me, it might have been cheesecake. I don't remember cheesecake particularly, but there were other, other things, fruit salad, example, things like that. Um, but but you, you, you will know your own examples. Huh? And, and then afterwards, we, we realize the consequences. Either an upset stomach, which is very... Direct, they call it instant karma in Buddhism. <laughs> or even if you, if physically you feel good, after a while, just once you wake up with clarity, you know the, the, the oh, what's the word? The sensual kind of overwhelm, this infatuation kind of recedes, and the mind thinks clearly more. Then suddenly you see actually what you've been doing, and then well, naturally you feel remorse. Hopefully, um, if you don't, that's probably a bad sign. You know, but then uh, there comes the suffering. Or you realize that, that there are a few people behind you on the line that are going to be quite cross with you for a while. <laughs> and that's not going to be pleasant. But it's, it's sometimes a long and painful learning process. And meditation can help. And that's interesting because that relates then to, the, to that third level where that sometimes apparently can be confusing. You know? And you're saying, okay, obviously see, we do notice, we are supposed to notice unwholesome Intentions coming up in the mind, and and not just uh, say, "All right, I notice this, and I notice I'm doing." Then 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 go move into action, and then notice that we're doing it, and so on. Just staying aware and being all accepting and non-judgmental. We are supposed to judge this, and therefore be informed, and you know, try in some way or another do something about it, so that we don't create suffering. Mm-hmm. So how does it how does it relate to the to the say meditation instruction or advice to just develop non-judgmental awareness and just allow things uh, arise, to arise and cease in the mind, even, you know, any, say, any kind of thoughts, you know, even, not even label them as, as, um, as good or bad. Seems to be a contradiction. But to me, I think that, that has to do with this feeling of the, the different levels from which we relate to our experience. You know, there's this one level, as I've just been talking about. This is, where we, this is actually an encouragement and, uh, towards, to look actually towards another, a deeper level of our being, which is actually there present for us all the time. And that's that kind of that level of just awareness. You know, again, to just recognize that, first of all, that, that is actually there as a reality. For all of us, you know, uh, the possibility of a, a, a just receptive, spacious, non-judgmental awareness, which first of all just really just perceives and recognizes experience just as it is. And allows it to be.
And that, I think, what, what that means, that it's not in contradiction with the capacity to, of course, discern and to distinguish and to learn uh, about what's wholesome, what's unwholesome. Rather, the opposite, I think, if you really discover that and develop that as a reality for ourselves, uh, that become kind of an abiding place say, for us, refuge, it can actually enhance that quality. You know, because what it allows is, first of all, there's a relaxation. We can, first of all, just... It's first of all, it's a, it's a recognition that there can be an unwholesome... There will be, no? I mean, unless your mind are very different from, from mine. There, there are you know, thoughts arising now after 20 years of practice quite, you know, that are very easy to me to recognize as unwholesome. Some horrible thoughts that I have sometimes, you know, depending on the time of the day and, and the nature of my experience, I can have horrible thoughts. You know. But the, precisely the, the, the discovery of awareness, that simple fact of capacity of, of, of knowing, which just knows, recognizes something, thought as thought, you know, gives the space to basically just receive it and just know it as such. Oh, this is not only to know, of course, to know that this is an unwholesome thought, which is useful, but on, on a more basic level, it's just a thought. And that's all it is. And if you don't interfere with it in anything, just as it has arisen, it's also going to cease. There's a lot of the trouble that we actually get into with, with, with reacting on un- unwholesome intentions and falling for the pleasure, pleasure principles because we, are ident- we, are, we have the tendency of being identified uh, with, with the mental contents, with our mental activities, and then get all involved in that you know, and either just believe it and act it out on some way or another and just, uh, just trying to deny it, trying to fight it, trying to repress it, creating an identity around it. I've got an unwholesome thought, so I must be an, an unwholesome person. You know? So I'm bad because I'm having a bad thought. Not so, at least not in my books. If not, I probably would have shot myself by now. <laughs> no? But I can, there's another option. No? I don't have to, therefore, hate myself because I have hateful thoughts sometimes. No? Or nor do I have to act them out. No? Nor do I have to fight them or repress them. I can also, there's this, this possibility, if this, this becomes clear and strong, just recognize, oh, this is just a thought, how interesting. And it can exist, it can exist. That's been very, very liberating on, on many ways. First of all, on the level that, it's, well, it's just a sword. I don't really have to. I sh- well, the, quite rightly, I mean, the Buddha said we should be alert to it. Uh-huh. But I, have to, I don't have to make, create a personal drama around it. I don't have to create an identity around it. I can just recognize it, and I can choose to not engage with it in any way. That's just the important thing. You know, then, I can, then, then that gives me actually the a platform on which I can just hold it, feel it. So I don't go overboard with it. I don't need to justify it. I don't need to believe it. don't need to justify it. Also, I don't have to fight it. I don't have to create an identity about it. So then what? No. Then it gives me the possibility to just feel it and feel the impact. And, and I can explore it. And I can maybe sometimes notice it's just a very superficial kind of thing and I don't really have to worry about it at all. No. Sometimes I can notice there's actually something more, there's actually emotion, there's strife, there's intention behind it, then I can notice, I can notice that for a start because, you know, precisely because I'm actually capable and willing to first of all receive it. You know? It's because of that, then I can actually start to explore it, I can feel it out. I can actually then start to f- feel that it burns, that it hurts. You know? Then I can explore more, what, where, then I can start to explore where does it actually come from. You know? 
what would actually lead to if I do believe in all that. And all those, the, the capacity to explore in that way and to develop wisdom in that sense is actually enhanced by the capacity to, first of all, just to receive it and allow it to arise and not to be too worried about it. No, and then also, but then, crucially, to not engage with it. No, not in, not in the ways, you know, in the ways that I said before. So then it can actually cease, and usually it will. And that's the same, like on the level of, this is, again, it's the same principle, like on the level of feeling, uh, you know, that we said before, pleasant, unpleasant. There's nothing wrong with that in, in principle. I don't have to, if I can just recognize cheesecake, pleasant, and just leave it at there, it's no problem, isn't it? I don't have to make a problem out of it. It's not wrong that I find cheesecake pleasant. It could, but I know, and that's, 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 again, that's, that's the, that's the, um, that's the way the Buddha talked about it, the kind of gist of his teaching. It's not, there's, so there's nothing wrong in itself in, in, the, in the sense pleasure. You know, but the important thing is that, you know, for, if you want to move towards a, the way of liberation, is then it's important that we see the sense pleasure. We see it's, it's, we see it's pleasure. You know, we, we, we see the delight in it. But we also see the limitation in it. We see the danger in it. You know, the potential danger in it. And therefore, then we also see you know, the way out, the, the way to release, you know? with, with, with cheesecake, you might say, is, is, is fairly harmless. You know, we just see, we see the pleasure, we see the danger, is in if, if I just, you know, overdo it. And so the way out is just, well, just take one piece. And that's good enough. You know? And that's a little bit the same, like with, with, with um, it becomes more pertinent and a bit more powerful, in a sense, but also with, with unwholesome thoughts or intentions. Take, say, just to make it a bit more tangible, take an example, like you're, in your, you're at work in a business meeting. And first of all, if you're like me, you probably don't like business meeting. So then you might already have, there's something going on already that you can notice, no? Maybe unpleasant, unpleasant feeling, don't like it. Now, if I have developed meditation, I have developed some, I will probably, that will carry over, that's, that's, that's the idea, you know? I will have a certain presence of mind there. I will have the capacity to just notice that. And just notice that and not judging it. It's not wrong or something, but it's important to be alert, to notice. Aha, no dislike. I know myself enough. No dislike, slight un- unpleasantness. So that, that will, of course, you know, you know, this is the foundation block, the basic building block for all our emotional mood. It's going gonna, it's gonna to push me towards a certain kind of inclination, isn't it, or whatever my particular kind of programming or conditioning is like, you know. No, unpleasant, so I'm going to be more inclined towards being grumpy, perhaps, or resentful or aggressive. Also, if I'm, if I'm developed a bit of skill there, you know, clever, then I know a little alarm bell going on. Isn't be alert. No, just factor this in. And then say, if your, if your boss says something and you really think this is out of order, no? That's fine. I mean, you, you, you're entitled to your opinions, even as a Buddhist. <laughs> No, and to your preferences and likes and dislikes, but then you notice maybe the reaction. You really want to get over and kill him, no, <laughs> or at least you really want to tell him, no. And if you haven't actually developed much holding capacity in terms of just being aware, noticing that, well, then there you go. You might actually, you know, one level might you, just, you, you must just, you might just act on it. You know, you might just get the knife out (laughs) 
and create suffering and will have you know the respective uh, consequences. You know. Or on a dozen level, you just might create a lot of unnecessary extra drama just on, on the fact of having those thoughts. You know, oh God, you know, I've just got this, this thoughts about you know about killing my boss again. You know, I shouldn't have those thoughts. You know, after all these years of meditation. <laughs> Or, you know, hopefully, you know, just be able to just notice, oh, it's just a thought. You know. Now, with, with the practice of, of meditation, you know, sometimes, you know, some, you know, over the time, over the years, whatever, if it works, to me, the thing is, and that's why we, in, in meditation, we use, use this exercise to simply really is re-establishing just a simple sense of presence. You know. Sometimes with, we starting with, usually with neutral, and that's more easy, Kind of objects like the breath or the body, you know, which also you know, are very good because they bring, a, bring us into the a grounded sense of presence in the body being here. You know. But it's basically an exercise, and whenever we can do that and can recognize we said, the sense of just being present, this gets strengthened. And hopefully, I mean, you, you, you see from your own experience more, more that this becomes more strong, more continuous, and more subtle in the capacity of what it is actually able to see, what it is actually able to receive, what is it actually able to just be with. You know, before you lose actually perspective and cave in and just become reactive again, become identified with your emotions. That's usually where it hits us most. It's one thing, being aware of the breath or the body or a bit of boredom or whatever. Well, some people find boredom difficult. Believe it immediately. You know, just because the mind gets bored, you think it's, this is bad and you want to have to do something. You know, if your meditation gets strong, then boredom can become very interesting. Just being aware of boredom. Huh? The awareness is not bored. It's just aware. Huh? Boredom is just another content of the mind. But emotions and moods are the ones that most easily, most completely cloud over the mind because they're so inv- invasive. You know? It's just like, like putting colored glasses on. You just see everything through that color. And it seems just so real. You know? And sometimes, of course, they are, it's also like with things like anger or, and, or lust. You know? The more passionate ones, they're just such a powerful driving force. They just take over. You know? Awareness collapses around them. And just before we know it, we just... Act on them, um, but but gradually, then if, if awareness gets stronger, then we're just able to hold those things. So they're not initially necessarily, therefore, just go away, magically disappear, so that you just become an all-loving kind of person. At least that's not my experience. You know, that always has nice, wonderful thoughts about everybody, you know, and all situations totally equanimous and and you know. All, <laughs> always comes out with the right kind of emotions and, and all kind of situations. No. But usually what she makes a difference is not necessarily that, but it's that first of all, more and more it's just a capacity to not being identified with the emotions. You know, to, to notice that you're actually much more than the emotion that manifests. You know. It's like the emotions are like the furniture in the room, you know, but the awareness is like the, the, the room that actually holds the furniture. I use that as an example because it is one, one, one example that I always like to reflect upon by this teacher, uh, Ramdas, that you, some of you might have heard about. He's not a Buddhist, but pretty close to Buddhist kind of ideas. And, and he once, in, in one of the few talks of him that I, that, that I heard, he was referring to that. Like when he started to practice, he thought spiritual practice meditation is going to sort out all his neuroses. You know, he said he had a lot. <laughs> And then when he gave this talk, it was a few years ago, he had been 40 years into this practice of meditation. And believe me, he, he went into it in a deep way, in a very, very strong, committed way. And there he, he said, uh, well, after those 40 years of practice, I realized I haven't sorted out not one of my neuroses. 
But he said, in case you find that disheartening, <laughs> he said, well, his experience, now, however true that was, I, I don't know, but, but I think it's a very good analogy. Also, he said, what actually happened is when he started practicing as a young man, it was like he was living in a very tiny flat, you know, like he was a student, like in a student flat, you know, this, a, a bed sit. There's all his furniture cramped in there, and whenever he tried to move, he would kind of bang into something and hurt his knee or his elbow or, you know, because he was hitting the table or the, the, the cupboard or something. And he said after those 40 years, he still had the same furniture, you know, which is a, which is a conditioning, you know, as I say, his neurosis, but he just had a much, much, much larger room, larger room in which to live. So he could just move around the furniture easily. You know, it wasn't a problem, you know. And it's a bit like, in, it's like the difference. It's a bit like the, the, the Buddha actually used the example one where it's like, it's like if you throw a stone in a bucket full of water, you know, it makes a splash and you've got a mess, isn't it? And the water goes all over the place. Yeah. If you throw a stone into a swimming pool, it's different, isn't it? It just makes a plop and just disappears. If you throw it into the ocean, you know, it's an, it's just not even making ripple, isn't it? it doesn't have any effect. And it's the same, like if you develop the capacity of the mind, you know, that space of awareness. The stuff that arises in there, you know, even the, the apparently difficult emotions, they just, it's just have much less power over us because there's just so much more space in there, so much more space around it. And of course, I, I would think that that's in, 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 in many cases, it probably eventually will also um, probably, you know, wind down or decrease some of the, the perhaps unhelpful and skillful intentions, motivations, inclinations that we might have. Precisely because the extra space that we have allows us to not feed them. No, that's really the principle on this, in this practice of radical acceptance, just allowing things to rise and cease, is to disidentify from the content and therefore not to feed the content in any way, not to know a thought as just a thought, no? not to believe its message. Mm. And know an emotion, which is all more difficult, so it's a more powerful, more complex kind of issue, as just being an, an emotion and not to feed it. No, when, when we recognize, particularly when we recognize that it's, that it's potentially dangerous or unwholesome. No, we can, of course, also sometimes we can choose, this, oh, this is just fine, so it's not a problem. Or if we, we understand or we feel something wholesome, we can also consciously develop it. The more I've actually, I have actually developed this space of just being this, no? creating space, allowing things to be, if I really can do that, then actually, to that extent, I have actually suddenly all more access to all those options and the Buddha was talking about all those different options. And rather than just feeling bad about having a bad thought, trying to fight it, that wasn't usually kind of the, the, the means that the Buddha offered. No, he offered other things we can then, you know, we can then start, for example, to just, uh, there's, there's, there's one particular sutta in, in, in the Majjhima kind of, it talks about the five ways of, of how to deal with unwholesome thought, actually quite specifically. He has five different methods that he mentions in there. And one of them is basically just to, just to, just to not pay attention, no? just to, or to consciously take your attention away from that and develop a contrary thought to that, a wholesome thought. No? Another one would be just to reflect on the unwholesomeness of it no? and, and, and the consequences of that. No? Or just to calm down the mind, you know, 
settling rather than you know, so, so disengaging from the energy that, that, that tries to drive us towards an action. You know, try to us just noticing, noticing the danger in it and just try and move towards the opposite, disengaging, calming down. Only the last one in there, which it says, is actually let's do it, kind of wrestle it down, you know, like a strong man would wrestle down a, a weaker man. So like the last resort. And even actually some people say it's possibly, as it's so unlike what usually the Buddha was talking about, it might have even only slipped in there, actually because it was the, this, this kind of this image of wrestling down. Um, there's some of the images that's used in there, like, like gritting your teeth and you know, pressing your tongue against your palate and, and like a strong man would wrestle down a weaker man, you, know, you wrestle down the unwholesome thought. It's actually, it was actually a standard description in, in some of the other uh, spiritual teachings for teachers around at the time of the Buddha. So some people think they might have just actually slipped in there as an extra into the end, but whatever, we, we can't know, of course. But it's, it's, it is, I think, good to see. And if you look at the overall, what the Buddha recommended is really just a last resort kind of thing. Sometimes you might recognize, you know, and we're really just about to do something that part of us knows is actually going to have very regrettable consequences and something that actually pu- pushes strongly for it. If you do have some other resource, uh, then, then that, that, that can be a last resort. Often it's quite unlikely to, to happen, isn't it? If you're really that um, fired up you know, towards some unwholesome action, it's probably, for most of us, we won't actually find the kind of resources and also at the same time, you know, a part of us because who's going to wrestle down <laughs> you know, the, the, the other part of us that is, that's moving towards the unwholesomeness. That's why sometimes we just need external forms or good friends. You know, sometimes we can hope that somebody else holds us down. <laughs> and sometimes we just go down and learn the hard way, isn't it? Just sometimes you know, that's just the nature of learning again and again and again. You know, by hurting ourselves sometimes, regretfully hurting others, feeling the pain afterwards, in the mind, that can help us also to recondition our mind in a positive way. So I hope that that's kind of elucidates those different levels and to, to some extent. Okay. So maybe that's enough for today.